0: hello skywatchers! thanks for listening to the royal Observatory's look up podcast i'm Brianne, and i'm patricia and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in december in this cosmic diary we'd also like to give a special mention and thanks to nishan Bala, one of our work experience students this summer who helped put the astronomical highlights in this cosmic diary together for us When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. It wouldn't be a December Cosmic Diary without a reminder of the beautiful meteor
1: showers that will be gracing our skies this month. The annual Geminids meteor shower is probably one of the most famous showers in the Northern Hemisphere, with over 100 meteors per hour being expected. Those living in the southern hemisphere may also be able to catch a glimpse of some meteors, though depending on when the constellation of Gemini rises, you may only have a small window in which to observe, so check for your local area. Unusually for a meteor shower, this one, the Geminids, arises as the Earth passes through the debris left behind by an asteroid, in this case, asteroid 3200 Phaethon. We can expect to see some meteors throughout the first half of December, but you'll have to wait until late on the 13th or early on the 14th for the peak of this one. Best views are expected when Gemini is high in the southern part of the night sky and the moon has set below the horizon. While, weather permitting, you will almost certainly see some meteors earlier in the evening, the waxing gibbous moon will wash out some of the fainter ones, so if you can,
0: stay up late to enjoy the show. While Jupiter and Saturn continue to be visible in the early evening sky, they are setting earlier and earlier. So if you wish to spot them, use the early sunset to your advantage and take a look in the south to southwest sometime between 6 and 7 p.m. You will know that you're looking at the planets rather than stars by their lack of twinkling. It's even easier with a telescope. Even if you can't quite make out the stripes on Jupiter, you will be able to see a distinct disk rather than a tiny point of light. You may even be able to see some of the moons orbiting around Jupiter, just as Galileo Galilei did in 1608 when he spotted the four largest moons of Jupiter, Callisto, Europa, Io, and Ganymede. His telescope was only capable of 20 times magnification. So even if you've got just a pair of binoculars, it's worth a try on a clear, dark night. Our own moon is
1: another excellent target for both naked eye and binocular observations. While the full moon occurs on the 19th of this month, if you've got a pair of binoculars and wish to look at some features up close, we recommend observing earlier in the month before the moon is fully illuminated. Mare Tranquillitatis, the Sea of Tranquility, the landing site for Apollo 11, a very famous sea indeed, will be illuminated from around the 10th of December, though you will need a little more magnification than you get from your average pair of binoculars to see exactly where the eagle landed. Near Mare Tranquillartitus lies Mare Serenitatis, the Sea of Serenity. Serenartitus lies to the north-northwest of Tranquillitatis from the perspective of us in the Northern Hemisphere. However, our Southern Hemisphere friends will need to invert these instructions and look towards the south southeast rather than the north-northwest. Serenartitus has an impact crater called Poissadonius at its northeastern or southwestern edge. This is best viewed around the sort of 10th to 12th as at this time, it will lie close to the terminator. That is the line between lunar day and lunar night. At this time, we have deep
0: shadows emphasizing the structure of Posidonius. Now that we're getting into December, we get to talk about one of our favourite constellations, Orion the Hunter, one of the most prominent and recognisable constellations in the Northern Hemisphere winter night sky. Named after the hunter Orion in Greek mythology, the constellation contains some of the brightest stars of the night sky and so it's relatively easy to spot even in light-polluted London. He can be found in the south to southeast throughout all of December. Look for the bright blue-white supergiant rigel at his left foot and the bright red supergiant betelgeuse at his opposite shoulder. Midway between them you should be able to find the three stars alnitak, Ulna alnilam Ulna and mintaka in a line making up the famous belt. There is also a cornucopia of deep sky objects to be found within Orion, with star-forming regions like M42, the Orion Nebula, and M43, the Marin's Nebula, being found just below his belt. These are part of the larger superstructure dubbed the Orion Molecular Cloud Complex, containing many stellar nurseries spanning hundreds of light-years.
1: Orion is not just visible in the Northern Hemisphere, As it lies on the celestial equator, you can see it in the December night sky from just about anywhere in the world. This means, of course, that this group of stars appears in stories of peoples all over the world, not just the ancient Greek story of Orion the Hunter. The seven brightest stars of Orion make up the Polynesian constellation Kahehe Onakeki, so named as it resembles patterns made by string games similar to what you may have heard called Cat's Cradle. The belt of Orion is known as Las Tres Marias, or the Three Marys, throughout much of Latin America and also the Philippines, and is isolated as its own constellation also by the Burong people of Victoria, Australia. They see the famous belt and sword as Orion as two men dancing, calling
0: it Kukunbula. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at R-O-G Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news.
1: Welcome back to the Cosmic News part of our podcast, where Patricia and I, once again, will be going head-to-head, presenting some interesting stories that we have found in the past month relating to astronomy. And of course, it is a head-to-head battle again, because Patricia is back.
0: Yay! Yay! I, I am back. Thank you, Bryony, for doing a brilliant job and doing the whole thing by yourself last month. It was much appreciated. But I, I fought off my cold valiantly, and I have returned Very and, glad to um, hear it. you know of course as you mentioned the twitter battle well shall we shall we discuss the results i obviously last month we didn't have a poll but i there was a poll the month before last month so how, how did it go
1: briny there was, there was indeed a poll last month, so you may have forgotten uh, about these stories that we said in our October Look Up podcast, but just to refresh your memory, I spoke about white dwarf stars and the potential for a little bit of hydrogen fusion to still take place uh, on their surfaces, while Patricia talked about a new type of supernova. Now, this one was quite close, only uh, a couple of votes between us, but the winner was... A new type of supernova well oh. done patricia it was it was a close one it was a very very close one only only a few percentage points between us but uh, your new type of supernova did win which I, I mean i really can't fault you for that supernovas are the most impressive most amazing dazzling brightest things in the universe yeah it seems only fair that they should win the poll
0: uh, well, I mean, if you said it was close, I do know that from even from our previous polls, they, it has been quite close. Some of these are just maybe one or two votes if, in the end, just uh, swinging, swinging the vote. So, yes, we encourage, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, please do vote for your favorite story. And this month, I believe we've both picked some interesting stories. Uh, so, Bryony, maybe we begin with you this month. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, we can start with me. Well, my
1: story is, it's a bit of a cute story, really. This uh, this article that I found on The Conversation, I think it's got the best title possible, and it is Your Smile's Cosmic History. Oh. Which is really cute. Uh, and this really, really drew me in. I, I saw the article on The Conversation. I will link it in the description of the podcast. Um, and I just, I had to talk about it, I had to look at the paper itself as well. its It's really cute. So the question is, of course, what does our smile have to do with some sort of cosmic history? I mean, what do we mean there? Well, we're actually talking about something you find in toothpaste, and that is fluoride. It is quite important for healthy teeth. It helps strengthen the enamel of your teeth. That's sort of a, the hard protective layer around your tooth. If you ever get a toothache, it might be because the enamel has worn away. So it's very important to brush up, brush your teeth daily, well, twice daily, even to make sure that there's no bits of food, or other things that can stick to the enamel of your teeth and wear away at it. So toothpaste contains this fluoride, which helps um, build that enamel as well. Fluoridated water is actually also one of the things that has been... A massive improvement in uh, dental hygiene. That is true. It yeah. really is quite amazing. Just what an improvement uh, having fluoridated water has made in people's uh, dental hygiene and just really your overall quality of life. Because I think we, you know, anyone who's ever had a toothache knows it is it is miserable. So obviously, um, the you know, the origin of fluoride is a, is an interesting topic, and this is something that I think is quite interesting in general because we're not really used to thinking about where things come from necessarily in that we sort of go oh okay well maybe you can extract some elements from the earth that's fair but where did it come from before that how did it get here and this is actually a really really fundamental question that goes right back to the big bang so we go back to the big bang we look at the very early universe now at the start of the universe it was an incredibly hot place so hot that you could not have real particles like particles did not exist it was just too hot there was too much energy floating around so we we think there was this thing called quark gluon plasma so that's your quarks and your gluons couldn't even form the nucleons the protons and the neutrons and also your mesons and that sort of thing it was just too hot for that now uh after mere seconds it cooled down a little bit and so then you started to be able to sort of form some more uh, some hadrons uh, or some mesons And that sort of started to cool down a little bit more a few minutes later, and you start to end up with this, uh, with a a more, a more gentle plasma. You still don't have any atoms. Uh, Electrons are still far too energetic. They will not stick to the, well, they not so much stick to the protons and neutrons, but they will not orbit them. You've still got ionized things floating around, but you are starting to get maybe the first hints of nuclei, the first hints of things starting to happen. Now, the universe was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hot and you could not form any element heavier than hydrogen. Well, a little bit of helium, maybe even a little bit of lithium and a bit of beryllium, but that's all that could be formed, these first four elements. And it was predominantly hydrogen that was formed very early on in the universe. And even as time went on and things cooled down, the calculations that people much, much cleverer than me have done, uh, just that they suggest that... Basically, from this initial burst of energy, and then as the universe cooled down, you end up with a ton of hydrogen, some helium, trace amounts of lithium, and maybe a bit of beryllium. But beyond that, in order for things to be created, they have to be created, well, after the Big Bang. And that means they would be created by stars. So that's where literally every single element heavier than really if we're talking appreciable amounts, helium comes from. Anything heavier than helium comes from super, not even just super massive stars, just stars fusing, hyd- fusing hydrogen and then fusing helium and then going into the, your sort of CNO, your carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. So that's that's where every single element comes from. And that's why as much as I, I do, I'm not a fan of your sort of
0: twee little attitudes, but the phrase, we are all made of stardust. Yeah.
1: It's true. We it's are. true.
0: I was just about to say that, Ed, because it is very much true. And I think that's quite It's quite interesting when you mention that to people and it's even just something as simple as pointing out if they're wearing jewellery, for example. Yeah. And you, you just point out to them that all of that was forged from the death of a star, you know, it, it, and that's where it comes from. And, and that always gets people quite surprised. But then, of course, you can push it further, as I'm sure you know, Bryony, and then talk about the human body and its makeup and, and everything as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. Well, that, that's the thing because
1: in order for our Earth to form, those elements had to be existing in the protoplanetary disk around our baby sun. And for that to have happened, our sun must have formed from the remains of a very old, well, a star that died a very, very long time ago. Because that's basically what happens. When, the st- when stars die, even the smaller stars, they blow off these outer layers, make these beautiful nebulae, and then from that, that can go on in the future to then form new stars and also new planets. So that's that's how elements came to be. That's how they come to be in the very first place. So you have your very first population of stars, which are interestingly called population three
0: stars, yeah. <laughs> because that makes sense. Um, yeah
1: yeah it's it's very strange
0: for the interested reader yes uh the 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 stellar population groups don't go one as being the first generation two second yeah no it's the opposite it's the opposite opposite, opposite, because that makes
1: sense definitely so your newer stars are called your population one stars population two are your slightly older ones and population three as far as i know we haven't found any that we're like this is definitely a population
0: three star that is true yeah it's Um, a very active area of research actually is to see if we can well, can we find a, a population three star? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. because then
1: what we're, what we're looking for then is something that is
0: really, really old and does not have
1: any heavy elements, any yeah. elements heavier than helium. So that's the thing. Even when you look at our sun, if you have a look at its spectrum, you can still see trace amounts of many, many other different kinds of atoms. It's predominantly hydrogen and helium, but particularly in its outer layers, you see a lot of other, other things because it is the remains from dead stars. So basically what happens is when the star goes kaboom and it releases a whole lot of energy, that will create a whole lot of elements, elements beyond iron. Because you need basically in order to fuse elements that are heavier than iron, you need a whole lot of energy. And the only way to get that energy in a cosmic sense is through the death of a really, really massive star. And so by looking at these far off galaxies and looking at the chemical abundances of them, we can look at, uh, well, for one thing, how old they are. Uh, and for another, here into the very early parts of our universe. Because this is this is something that's quite interesting. When we have a look at galaxies, we might look at them and we might be like, hang on, this seems to have a lot more of this particular chemical. I mean, when we say a lot more, we're still thinking 0.0, 0 something percent, but it might be double what we would expect. And so then we have to go back to our models of star formation and stellar evolution and go, okay, well, what process could possibly re- be responsible for this? Why are we seeing that there? is this you know, is there a cloud in our way that is enriched with this somehow you know this is this is a really active area of research and a really fascinating one i think um, but uh, basically, this uh, what these researchers were looking at. Um, mostly UK-based researchers, also some in Poland and uh, North and South America as well. But they were looking at this very far-off galaxy. Which let me just quickly find what the galaxy is called. There we go. It's called NGP one nine zero three eight seven. I had to look that up for obvious reasons. They used it the, uh, the Atacama Large Millimeter or Submillimeter Array, so ALMA, as I'll be referring to it from now on. And they were looking for things that uh, are very, very far away, looking at light of a wavelength of around a millimeter, which means they were looking at the cold dust, essentially. So, looking at the cold dust and gas in really, really distant galaxies. So the reason why they're looking at the cold dust and gas is because they're not looking necessarily for the stars. They, they want to look at what has been produced by the stars and is now in the galaxies. So they were looking at this, uh, this particular wavelength, which when they uh, accounted for the redshift of this very, very distant galaxy um, that we think We're seeing it as it was over 12 billion years ago. Uh, So it's a very, very distant galaxy. They were seeing a dip that was the exact right wavelength of absorption thanks to hydrogen fluoride, which seems strange because they were not expecting to see a dip of quite that much. Like, sure, they were expecting to see a little bit of hydrogen fluoride because you do expect that in even these really old galaxies, but they saw quite a significant dip and they went, hang on a second, this is a really old galaxy. This should not have been formed very long ago. There should not have been enough time for it to, in its lifetime, be this enriched with hydrogen fluoride. And that seems really strange because as far as they can tell, other observations of this particular galaxy suggest that it is still, you know, at least at the time when the light that we're receiving left it, at that time, it was still actively, really, really active in its star forming phase which means it shouldn't be at the point where really large stars are dying to yeah. produce lots of hydrogen fluoride. Yeah. And they were like, okay, this seems kind of strange. Like we've we've never seen a star forming galaxy with this much fluoride before. And so then what they did is they had a look and they said, okay, well, what do we need to change about this galaxy to change about our models of this galaxy in order to account for this extra fluoride? And they went, well, actually one extra source that we haven't really put a lot into is this thing called a Wolf-Rayet star. Wolf-Rayet star, maybe it, it, it depends on how you want to pronounce uh, his last names. So they were discovered by Paris Observatory in the uh, the mid nineteenth century, and they they're they're quite interesting stars. Really, they're very very massive stars, absolutely huge, like ten times the mass of our sun at least, and they do not live for very long. But an interesting thing about these stars is that because they are so massive and live for such a short length of time, they've actually got a slightly different structure to your usual stars. They do not have a really big hydrogen burning envelope around them. When they're reaching the end of their life, they are pretty much producing so much energy, they've blown off this hydrogen envelope. And so they have this sort of but much more exposed helium burning core, and they end their lives really dramatically. They produce some of the biggest supernovas. And they produce quite a lot of fluorine. Okay. And when they added these and they added a few more wolf raye stars into their model, they realized that they could actually account for this for, like for this fluorine that was being produced. they could see in this cold gas. They could say, okay, well, suppose some wolf-raye stars had existed and then died very quickly. That would enrich the cold gas of this galaxy enough to account for that fluorine, which is really exciting because that suggests that star formation in galaxies happens on a really short time scale. Because that suggests that these Wolf Ray A stars, even though this galaxy is still forming and it's still been only 1.4 billion years since the Big Bang, this galaxy has only had at max like a billion years to form. Yeah. In that time, it has still had a population of Wolf-Rayet stars be born and die, such that we can't see that population anymore,
0: but we see the remnants of it. So we can see their influence on on the galaxy itself, because they've. I mean, exactly. Wow, that's and amazing to think of that they managed to form. Well, as you say, form, live, and then die. Such that's exactly time, it. They've managed
1: yeah. to enrich the galaxy so much, but they've. But there is still active active star formation occurring. Because there are some Wolf-Ray stars in our Milky Way, but they've only cataloged like a few hundred. They're quite rare as far as things go. Um, But maybe that could possibly be because they are really, really short-lived and they require maybe these really, really strange conditions to be created. Maybe they were more common in the much earlier universe. This is something now that astronomers who are looking at really early galaxies will now want to think about in their models. They might look at their models and go, okay, well, I've had these other strange dips. What if I put in some more wolf A stars? Is that going to affect it? Because of course, you know, wolf stars do, it's not just fluoride that they produce. They produce lots of other things as well. Um, but it is one of those things that you need really high energies if you want to produce a lot of fluorine. And after only a billion years, you're not going to have a lot except for them. I think it's really, really fascinating because it really does, once again, show how things come to be. Yeah. Like we really I, I really take it for granted that we have all this stuff, the carbon in our bodies, but that came from dead stars. Yeah. When stars even I mean stars the size of our sun do produce a bit of carbon so when it goes nova, it wasn't so much explode as just sort of sigh off its outer layers but there'll be some carbon in the dust and gas left over suppose the cycle continues um, then maybe there'll be a little bit they'll get a bit denser and they sort of start to pull in a little bit tighter and so all that carbon will maybe start to form and be put together with all these other bits of rock um, to form another planet that is enriched with carbon so that carbon-based life forms can evolve this it's a really wild thing to think about that yeah the idea of where do things come from doesn't just finish with the earth you have to go even further you have to go further and you, yeah and you can go further you can go so much further you can be talking about the early universe and talking about
0: our smiles oh, I that I love that link and I the title yeah, as well of the paper is it's really I mean, deep. to be fair, that's not the title of the paper. The, I mean,
1: okay, to be fair, the title of the paper is A Ramp-Up of Interstellar Medium Enrichment at Z, Redshift Greater Than 4. Okay, but it's only the, the article. Articles. The yeah. article had the great name. I mean, I mean, it, it was Nature Astronomy. It's a, it's a letter in Nature Astronomy, so I understand why they couldn't give it a tweet. But, yeah. So uh, I, I had to go with this paper. I, I really love it. Really fascinating. Really interesting looking at this process of chemical enrichment
0: in these really old galaxies. So what, what, what have you brought to the table, to our smiles? So this month, again, shock horror, I am leaving the solar system behind once more. Oh, my goodness. I know, wow. I know. I'm, I, it's, it's a new me, Bryony. It's a new me. I'm, you know, I'm leaving the solar system behind. Um, but the story I chose for this month uh, has to do with a star that many people probably have heard of. It's a star that can be found in the constellation of Perseus, and it's a star called Algol. Now, to the unaided eye, in other words, uh, to an eye that's just looking up at the sky without any additional means, like a pair of binoculars or a telescope, Algol looks like an individual star. But something that our ancestors recognized was that Algol's brightness changed with a regular pattern. So its its brightness was not constant. Now, Algol's name derives from an Arabic word, meaning the demon's head, because it represents Whoa. the head of the Gorgon Medusa. And so Algol is often called the demon star. And I think that is a fantastic name to, to give a star. And now because these brightness changes were visible by eye, the star also became known as the winking demon Now, I mean, a list of cool star names. It's so alluring as well, the Winking Demon. Not just the Demon Star,
1: but the Winking Demon. I mean, I'm really hoping that you're here to tell us that Algol is indeed a
0: Winking Demon Star because, I mean, it's got to live up to its name, right? Well, this is where we're going to break your hopes, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you had these brightness changes that were visible. And of course, it was trying to figure out what's going on so it took a long time for people to figure it out but basically once you had the telescope being invented and then you had astronomy becoming a proper science based on observations astronomers eventually were able to figure out that the changes that were observed in its brightness um, are produced because algol is not an individual star. It is, in (sighs) fact, an eclipsing binary star. So basically what this means is that Algol itself, so what we perceive by eye to be Algol, an individual star, is, in fact, two stars, you know, called Algol A and Algol B. And these two stars orbit around a common center of mass. And they just happen to be... Uh, aligned or tilted precisely enough towards the earth that from our point of view they pass in front of each other and Mm -hmm. because they have different brightnesses you end up producing dips in the brightness that you see by eye and if you basically if you were to plot the brightness as a function of time you would see eclipses you would see drops in brightness produced as these two stars Orbit this common center of mass and consequently pass in front of each other producing eclipses. So the primary eclipse occurs when the dimmer algol B passes in front of the brighter algol A and the time between two primary eclipses is 2.867 days so it's moving incredibly quickly I was gonna say that is a that is a very very quick star, considering it also is.
1: the like the masses involved are they larger than our sun do we know
0: uh well so we are dealing with a system that consists of a I actually have them down because I knew I'd forget them Bryony so uh bear with as I just grab my uh piece of paper so what we know is that you've got a b8 star so of Of course, that's going to be much bigger than the sun. But then the components, the algal B component is a K2 star. Oh, actually, so smaller. So So you've got a really big uh, B-type star and then you've got a K2 star. So if you've got this time between two primary eclipses of being 2.867 days, that basically means that's the orbital period of the system. That's why I said they're moving incredibly quickly. So astronomers figured this out and they were very, very happy about this. But then in the late 1950s, astronomers then discovered that algol was in fact a multiple star system. So not even binary, going more than binary now. Oh no. How many? So, so they found an addition one additional star, which they then called algol C. Imaginative. So basically, algol C and algol. AB. So now what we've done is we've taken the Algol A and Algol B system, called it Algol AB. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And Algol C and Algol AB orbit around another common center of mass. And that has a period of 1.86 years. Oh, wow. So, I mean, how big is Algol C then? Is it significant? Because it
1: seems kind of strange to me to think that you could have a very large star and a less large star and then another star that we didn't see until now but that's a system and they're all kind of orbiting together. I mean, I in my so, head, I think that C should be large, but is that is that not the case?
0: So it, it honestly depends on so separations as well as, as you say, the relative brightnesses of the two systems as well. So if you've got that um, algal C is quite dim, if it passes <clears throat> in front of something much brighter, it's going to block off quite in a hefty portion of that light. So it can have these really interesting configurations in all of these systems as well. So, yes, yeah, So we're now in the 1950s. We now know algols actually factor a multiple stellar system with three components. And so we basically thought that the picture of algol was complete. Okay. Oh, no. However. Oh, no. There's more? A, yeah. Wow. In a new paper that was published recently, and I'm going to read the title. This is the actual title of the paper, Bryony. Yes. The title of the paper is say hello to Algol's new companion candidates. That is the title of the paper. Oh, that's adorable. And what the astronomers have done, and I'll explain a bit later on how this is done, is they've basically analyzed historical data of Algol and have performed an analysis and have said that Algol has a few more companions than we originally thought, potentially... An additional five. Five? Yeah. <laughs> what? So I'm going to point out at this point, these are just listed as candidates, okay? Yeah. Because we need to have follow-up observations to confirm this. Okay. Yeah. Now, you would think in astronomy that the brighter you are, the easier it is to do things, right? I mean, that's typically the way it goes. But in this case it's not <laughs> oh, because no. one of the challenges is that these candidates are assumed to be quite dim okay mm-hmm. and because our goal is so bright you might not be able to see them <laughs> okay so so this is now a bit of a thing where you go okay but hang on H- how then can you see unseen companions okay if you've got a star that's so bright how do we know there's other objects there all right so let's go back in time Brianie. okay let's go back to the original algol eclipsing binary before the discovery of the third star okay so we yes. all we know is that it's two stars that's it algol is a binary system and i said that the orbital period of the system or the time between one primary eclipse and the next one is 2.867 days Now, because you know the orbital period, if you happen to know the exact time that a previously observed primary eclipse occurred, you can then use that information to calculate when future primary eclipses will occur because they're going to happen regularly with a period of 2.867 days. It's kind of the point of the whole eclipsing thing, I guess. Exactly. So what you then do is... Once you've got these calculated times, you then set out to observe them. So in whatever means you want to do this, you'll go to measure the brightness of the system, and you basically wait, and you obviously want to time your observations to when the brightness drops to its absolute minimum point during the eclipse. And once you've got all your data, you can then pull out or extract the times of minimum brightness. Okay, so the times when you had that absolute minimum. And this is usually done by fitting polynomials to the data. And in most cases, it's nothing more complex than actually fitting a second order polynomial. And the reason I know this is because I used to do this. This was part of my master's research. I used to do eclipse timing measurements and that. So I know that if you actually look at light curve shapes, they are symmetrical. So eclipses are symmetrical in shape. Barring any potential magnetic activity, and that's a whole story for another day. But for the most part, because they're symmetrical, you can fit a second order polynomial to a short enough section of the data from which you can pull out the time, the observed time minimum. So then what you do, because you had a table of calculated times of minimum and a table of observed times of minimum, What you then do is you take your observed time, you then subtract the calculated time from that, and you end up with a table called observed minus calculated values. And then what you do is you take those values and you just plot them against time. All right? And then that is how you construct something called an observed minus calculated or O minus C diagram. Right. So why do you want to do this? Well... If you have the correct orbital period for this system, then you'll see that your O minus C values will be scattered around the line O minus C equal to zero. Yeah, which would make sense. Because you're going to have inherent noise in your data. There are going to be uncertainties. You're going to have specific times when you can observe. You know, you might not hit the exact one. Precisely. And maybe you had a cloud roll in and it's thrown out your measurements, okay? So you'll be able to see if you've got spurious points of data, which you can ignore. But essentially what you're looking for is a fairly narrow spreading values around O minus C equal to zero. However, if you plot your diagram and you don't end up with that, then you can... Infer something. Okay. So if you have an O minus C diagram that actually shows a positive slope, right, then that tells you that the true period of the system is longer than the period that you used. Hmm. While a negative slope tells you that the true period is shorter than the one that you used. Now, all you then need to do is perform a regression analysis and you can then determine the correct period of the system. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Then you have the correct period. If you then redo your O minus C values, you'll end up with them scattered about O minus C equal to zero. Yeah. But what if your O minus C diagram doesn't have a linear trend? Okay. But instead, Mm -hmm. it has a cyclic shape to it. Ooh, well, that tells you that, I guess, sometimes you're on the money and sometimes you're off. So what it tells you is that Your observed times of minimum brightness are occurring earlier and then later and then earlier and then later, i.e. in a cyclic manner. And this tells you that your system has to be a member of a multiple star system because that unseen companion is pulling the system to and fro. And that produces something called the light travel time effect. And that's what you measure. You're actually able to measure this through your data. So all you then need to do again is you would perform the appropriate regression analysis and you'd then be able to determine the orbital period of the multiple star system. And you can pull out a little bit more information actually about what's what's really happening in your system as well. So if you perform the correct regression analysis, you effectively can remove that um, oscillation, you can remove it from your data, and then you should end up again with O minus C values scattered about O minus C equal to zero. So that is what people do. When we're we're doing a period analysis of eclipsing binaries, this is what we're doing. We're removing all these trends because we're trying to figure out what's happening in these systems. So thanks to record keeping, and I should point out it's amazing, you know, if you actually have a look in the data, if you look in the archives, how much data we have for stars, we have data for variable stars or stars whose brightness changes over time uh, that go back hundreds of of years. Okay. Now, what an astronomer at the University of Helsinki has done is the astronomer has reanalyzed the O minus C data of Algol and that spans from 1782 all the way through to 2018 wow. now something i should just point out which i'm sure you've probably all like thinking about the year 1782 it was all based on visual observations all right so they didn't have photographic plates they didn't have ccd cameras so a lot of that was estimates based on eye Mm. and you can imagine you've Mm. probably got very large error bars associated with those kind of observations but anyone who's done a data analysis knows you just do weighted regression analysis and so you would compensate for these enormous error bars on older data so, using a, a new method that the author developed, his resulting analysis of this O minus data, C data stretching the, of this few hundred years suggests that there are five companion candidates to the eclipsing binary algal system, and that their periods range from 1.863 to 219 years. Whoa, true. Okay. I mean... Wow. I mean that
1: one in particular that's going to be um I mean good luck getting telescope time for that. So well this
0: is the thing so I said there's five candidates okay. Yes. But one of them is not new. Okay <gasps> because the period determined for one of the candidates is 680.4 days. Mm-hmm. And the orbital period of Algol C Is six hundred and seventy nine point eight five. So they've basically rediscovered Algol C, which is good because that's hopefully what you wanted your analysis to pick up. Is this other companion? So uh, they've rediscovered effectively Algol C, but that still means that there are potentially four other candidates in the Algol system. Wow. But like I said, follow up observations are going to be needed. So how do you do it? Well, very simply. You just keep collecting data of (laughs) algal and you keep measuring the times of the primary eclipses and you keep calculating O minus C values because importantly, what the author has done, they have made a prediction of the trend that the O minus C values should follow from 2018 onwards. So what they're effectively saying to people is if you happen to have data on Algol starting, I think in about October, 2018, stretching through and going uh, I think further for about another seven years that you get get about 10 years of data. All you need to do is just see if the O minus C values match the trends that they've predicted. Now, of course, if it does, that's really good because now you've got more evidence that supports the analysis that they've done. Uh, If it doesn't, then it suggests that either the analysis was flawed or it needs to be redone or there's something else going on in the system. And that is certainly true. So for anybody who does this kind of research, who works on eclipsing binaries and they're trying to understand uh, sort of what's happening in the system there are so many things that can produce period changes in a system over time you've got um, mass transfer that can happen between components you've even got things like magnetic activity on the stars that can mimic shifts in uh, the brightness so That's if, just especially if you've got, this is the thing brian well welcome to my master's degree <laughs> where you could potentially have Stellar spots, okay, effectively sunspots, but you know, huge spots. And because you've got brightness changes on the surface of the star, that will affect when you think the primary bright uh, minimum or the primary eclipse occurs. So there are so many factors that could produce these changes. And so it's very important when you're seeing these changes to you know make sure that you obviously are doing weighted analyses that you have got your error bars but that you can you use as long a baseline as possible you know, to your observations on. And that's why historical data is so important because you've got great long baselines. But then obviously, as you can imagine, now that we've got all these massive sky surveys taking place, uh, they're taking precision measurements. You can really fine tune your O minus C values now. They're not going to have as enormous error bars as they used to in the past. So I think what we're going to see potentially with Algol is that as people add data to it, this is probably going to change it's what it's what happens but it's just very exciting and and this is why i chose it for the month because i thought uh it's just an interesting story so that people understand how this kind of thing works and how we can actually infer the presence of unseen companions so to speak and also because it was basically research that i did in a sense
1: yeah it's it's really cool that this is like this you know this is what you did you know it's really nice to hear about what you did from you as well like it you know it's it's always so much better to explain something that you have obviously experience with so um, yeah yeah that's really cool it's really cool to hear Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much, Patricia, for a fantastic story. As always, I know very little about eclipsing binaries. So it's really, really nice to learn a bit more. Although I have to admit, I'm just just imagining your Algol AB going, oh my goodness, we have five children now. It's sort of what I'm picturing in my head. (laughs) But thank you very much. And we will see you guys next month.